We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, GabFest listeners. Help us make Slate even better by filling out our short survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Thank you. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for February 25th, 2021, the shocked, shocked by her tweets edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. In Washington, D.C., I'm joined, as ever, by John Dickerson of CBS's 16 Minutes from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. Today, we're going to talk about why Neera Tandon's nomination to be OMB director seems DOA, DOA at OMB. Then, Merrick Garland will be the next attorney general. Has he been confirmed? He hasn't quite been confirmed, right? But he will be the next attorney general. Can he root out domestic terrorism, white nationalism um, from his perch at the Department of Justice? And we'll be joined by new Slate podcast host, Jason Johnson, whose podcast, A Word, starts this week. We will revisit the issue of police violence against black people and the judicial system's response to it in the wake of news in the Daniel Prude and Elijah McClain cases. Plus, the Supreme Court does not split four to four on a critical case as the Senate delays confirmation of the nominee to succeed Justice Breyer because Justice Breyer mysteriously (laughs) has not yet stepped down. Plus, Breyer Watch continues by David Plotz. Breyer Watch continues. I think we all know that standards of basic civility are really important to Washington. Both parties have maintained a real dignity in the last few years. The Factual fair use of social media, Republicans in particular, have been obsessed with that. We've all agreed that Twitter is a place for respectful disagreement, as our last president demonstrated. So it's no wonder, I, I think, that uh, President Biden's nominee to be OMB director, Neera Tandon, will almost certainly not be confirmed to that job because of the outrageous things that she said on Twitter. Uh, it's, her tweets are shocking, Emily. I think we can agree. I've never seen anything like it from a, someone who, who aspires to being a public official. Do we have a, like an irony bell that can go off um, just like so nobody gets confused here while they're on their run trying to navigate their way around some puddles? Do you guys follow Isaac Chotner on Twitter? Because Isaac, this is like his performance art of Twitter, that he posts things like what you just said in utter sincerity, but not. And it's like my favorite I love it so much. It is, but but it's very, and it, with the reason it's so uh, diabolical and effective and, and has such art to it is that it's really in voice. It really nails the... Um, and we should say that Isaac Chodner is a writer and does interviews for The New Yorker. David, so I actually crave some more civility. I mean, look... I, I, so, first of all, I actually don't really know anything about Neera Tandon. I know that she runs the Center for American Progress, and that's like a big, 
democratic important think tank, but I like don't have a read on her. I've never met her. I I hear about her all the time, but she's like one of those important people in the political universe who I have never totally figured out. So I can't decide like whether it's a huge loss or not that she looks like isn't going to get to be the director of OMB, which is the thing that I would actually care about. However, I am happy to discuss whether her tweets were too uncivil to merit this appointment. And of course, you are correct that there is just something epitomizing hypocrisy about having people complaining about the fact that she, like, called somebody Voldemort and, you know, is super harsh and caustic on Twitter, given the civil discourse we've had from Washington in the last four years. That said, I don't love it when people act that way on Twitter. Right. Is the right standard that... Everybody gets to be an asshole on Twitter or on social media. No one gets to be an asshole on social media or only my side well, gets to be an asshole. And that's the problem is that the best principle, which is that no one should be an asshole, is not possible in this environment where it's just go to your corner. Well, or that you can be a, that you can be a jerk, but it's not a firing offense. I mean, it seems to me that the, the issues at play here are is near at hand and the right person or wrong person for this job. And in, in, in that question, well, let's just figure them out. Right or wrong person, then there's the question of whether she's being unfairly put through the ringer because of her race and gender. Then there's the question of uh, hypocrisy. And then, and I think that that has two parts. There's sort of garden variety hypocrisy. And then there's hypocrisy in this specific instance where what she is being called out for is the, which is the lack of civility and and I'm using John Cornyn, um, the Republican senator from Texas, cited lack of civility and conspiracy theories, which is not just the so we have the question of whether those should be disqualifying for a job, but then you have the question in that we just went through four years of the most powerful person in American government exhibiting those two attributes above all others and not just. Did people? I didn't like John see Cornyn. that, John. I didn't see him doing. I didn't see those tweets. About Not that. only did the, the did, did John Cornyn and others make a regular practice of pretending they didn't see these things, uh, but in fact, when President Trump engaged in those two things, it was cited by lawmakers and his supporters as proof of his special talents for the job. So, in other words, it wasn't just a thing that harmed him; it was a thing that elevated him. And so that's why this isn't just garden variety hypocrisy. And it has more to do than just with the, the um, uh, near attendance fortunes and future. It, it is a retroactive affirmation of what we all once knew, which is that Republicans who once thought these ideas were important in the public conversation totally ignored them. So it's retroactive proof of what we knew, which is they saw something that they thought was important and they did nothing about it. The... I, I, my own read on this is actually this is, has nothing to do in particular with Republicans. Republicans are happy to take down any Democratic nominee they can take down. They're, they're, that's a that'll be a win for them in the Senate. It's the Joe Manchin upon whom so much sits. He's annoyed because I I presume because Neera Tandon went after his daughter. His daughter is the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. Neera Tandon tweeted slightly mean, although true things about her compensation, Heather Breath, Bresh, I think her name is. And I assume that this is just, this is just Manchin being like, screw that. I don't, she's not that important. I don't need to, to get her through. And Manchin is in a position where he, you know, because of the state he represents, he cannot be 
a rubber stamp for Joe Biden. So I assume he's picking his shots where he feels like it's safe to go against the Democratic orthodoxy. And this is one where he's going to go against the Democratic orthodoxy, and that's going to cost Neera Tandon her job because no Republican will will support her. And standing and, up for well, civility might play perfectly well. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, well, and, it's, and, it's, and also, near t- and honestly, like I go back to, I mean, I know a teeny bit about Neera Tandon, but she's not that important. There are plenty of good economic policy people in Democratic circles. There is no shortage of economic policy people who will come in and do a good job at at OMB. Oh, she is a it woman d- of color. They don't grow on trees in this administration. I mean, the Biden administration is trying to increase the number, the the make the government look more like the country. And so in that sense, she has, you know, she's special. Yes. True. Yes, but there are true. there are other people that they're already readying for the post who are women of color. So it's right. Isn't the isn't the deputy John somebody who is a, yeah. a black a black woman and who yeah. will likely be the nominee? Right. Senator Shelby of Alabama has already said I would vote for her. For, I would vote for Young. So, um, but I think David, I don't think you meant you, by describing Joe Manchin as he's the proximate cause for why her nomination looks doomed because you can't get to fifty um, for her, and that's um, highly unlikely that there are going to be any Republicans that are going to come over. Um, Susan Collins already having said um, that she didn't like the mean tweets, one of which was directed at her. But I think, but don't, I don't think you meant to dismiss the, um, why that is important to recognize that the, um, that Republicans using the meanness of the tweets um, is more than just garden variety hypocrisy. It, It has a really important, it's really important because if it just becomes like, oh, they can use this and it's just another political tool, I think it 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 diminishes the the gravity of what happened in the last four years. And the faster that gets diminished, the more dangerous things get. That's very well said. Do you guys think it's any accident, Emily, I'll direct this to you, that so many of the nominees who look headed for some form of trouble are people of color in Deb Holland and Neera Tandon and and Becerra at at, uh, HHS. I mean, it's really hard to think that it's an accident. And Deb Holland is particularly interesting because she's running into trouble because she isn't down with, like, the usual energy company coziness. Um, So, you know, like, with her, it really seems has to do with her views and challenging the usual, um, you know, corporate pleasantness in Washington. So I'm watching that one with a lot of interest. One question I have about Tandon, you know, when Biden announced her nomination, it seemed likely, at least to a lot of people, certainly to me, that the Republicans were going to win the two seats in Georgia and take control of the Senate. And she looked kind of like a sacrificial lamb, like the person who was going to go down in hopes that maybe some other people would be confirmed by a Republican-controlled Senate. Then the Democrats had their 50 votes, and it looked like maybe she could get confirmed. I sort of wonder if, I don't maybe that's like super in the weeds, but I wonder if that part of the calculus is informs what's happening here. I'm not accusing the Biden people of not fighting for her by all obvious signs. They are just if like there was a way in which it sort of seemed like it was baked in that she might not get confirmed from the beginning. Is that wrong, John? I mean, I think that's no, no, I think it's an interesting it's a it's a really interesting question to to ponder. I there's no evidence that they did that. But I think what's What's important that that is uh, is is thinking of this in turn in the larger question of Joe Biden is going to ask these 
moderate Republicans slash Joe Manchin, whatever group we want to call this, to take some tough positions on a variety of things. And so this is cumulative. So that, in other words, if somebody goes to the bat for Neera Tandon, they have a diminished capacity to go to bat for any other thing, whether it's a nominee or the $1.9 billion. So it should be seen in that larger context. Um, uh, but I don't know that there's any evidence that they put her, that they that right. she was fodder. I've, one thing that Ron Klain, the chief of staff, has said is that they will not try to do a recess appointment of Tandon and that she'll find some other, they will find another job for her that doesn't require Senate confirmation, which suggests, as of our taping on Thursday, that, that the White House sees, you know, what's happening is what's happening. And so it looks like there's going to be another OMB director. By the way, a friend of the show, Mitch Daniels, wrote an op-ed saying that the Republicans should get over it um, and, and and confirm her as an act of a return to civility itself, which is not which is a, an arg- a good argument, which is that basically civility requires disarmament by one side to try to encourage that behavior from others. But the funny thing about his piece, I thought, was basically he's like, the job of OMB director is really not that important, which is a job he once held. Wait, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, current head of Purdue University, correct? And former yes. OMB director under George and w. In, Bush. And yes. in, in actually, in the in the um, alt universe that runs in my head, he's, <laughs> he's the president. He's just finished his first term as president. <laughs> <laughs> right after Mitt Romney, and he only won re-election. David Plotz is happy. He won re-election to that second term. It was it was interesting. The uh, I, just going back. Let's wrap this up. But I, I want you, John, because you 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 think about this so much. Um, so, what do we do about this this non-garden variety hypocrisy? Do do we want do don't we we if we want a return to civility in some fashion? How is it possible? Is it only possible if? the Republicans who were so grotesque about it for the past four years when Trump was involved, do some kind of public self, uh, self abasement about it. And then they can, well, have, yeah. then they can, then they can go back to it. Or is, but we do, because it would be better. It would be better if we went back to it. Right. It'd be yes. nicer, a better world. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, look, so first of all, we have to recognize gradations and flavors that, you know, uh, one logical fallacy is to compare apples to oranges. Another logical fallacy is to compare a couple of apples to an entire apple orchard. Neera Tandon wrote some, distinct from the question of whether she would be good for the job, she may be awful for the job. So that's what its own category. But, but relative to what, she's not even in the same category. She wrote some mean tweets. She said some, uh, some, you know, caustic things. Um, but it was nothing like what Donald Trump did on a given day. I mean, in her whole career. I mean, mocking a disabled person in front of a, of a crowd and getting cheers for it is just a single example that is vastly different than anything she did. So, like, to even mention this in the same sentence needs a huge uh, statement like the one I'm trying to make, which is that you're you're really talking about a class of two different things. So, but distinct from that is your good point, David, which is that basically the reason we have all these rules of behavior um, that Donald Trump dismantled on purpose and with to to cheers is that it like this is the stuff that gets you know, allows people to do difficult things as if you just behave politely and we should return to that. Um, And I think, um, how does it get restored? I think by people 
um, modeling, you know, good behavior, I think, is the way it gets restored. I don't think you see anybody who's going to say, you know, this was bad, that Donald Trump behaved this way. Although I think Liz Cheney is doing something like that when she says about January 6th, she says, we can't trivialize this or look away. And obviously the insurrection is different. Good example. Yeah. But it grows out of the same conflict within the Republican ranks between those who would basically look away. I mean, there are people who are trying to, I didn't see the tweets about the 6th of January. So they are of a piece. But I think essentially it requires modeling and that takes a while to, to kick in and more than one person has to do it. And it has to not be the usual suspect. You know, it can't just be Mitt Romney and Ben Sass. Um, it has to be people uh, who you would say, huh, wow, I didn't expect that from them. And yet, as you have pointed out, the incentives, the political incentives seem to run in the opposite direction. The political incentives run exactly in the opposite direction. It's better to get called out for being a jerk n- now um, because you want to be called a jerk by the right kind of people. And you see politicians who want to distract from their own, you know, issues trying to get in big fake fights with with the right kind of people in order to, like, get back in the good graces of their team. Slate Plus members, you get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, bonus segments on our show every week. And you'll also be supporting the work we do here on the GabFest and the work folks do at Slate if you become a Slate Plus member. It's only a dollar for the first month. So consider it. To sign up, go to slate.com slash gapfestplus. Our Slate Plus topic today is going to be uh, why Americans are so bad about risk assessment or why or is everyone so bad about risk assessment? Again, slate.com slash gapfestplus to become a member today. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Merrick Garland has been getting an easy ride from the Senate in his confirmation hearings to become attorney general. He will become attorney general. He, of course, was the federal judge who was going to uh, be nominated, who was nominated by by President Obama to fill the seat of Justice Scalia. And 
the Republican-controlled Senate refused to hold hearings, and that seat ended up being filled by a nominee of Donald Trump's. It is clear that Garland, as attorney general, is going to prioritize rooting out the threat that domestic terrorists and the capital insurrectionists and those who abet them and ally with them pose to American life. How you do that, what that means, I think is a really big question that has enormous issues about the Constitution, enormous issues about how we police our own country, about the the balance between federal and state authority. So, Emily, I want to start with you. Um, why has this threat of domestic violence and insurrection and upheaval risen so much in the last few years? How much of it is that the political climate is it? How much is it that the Trump administration encouraged these kind of groups to to act in these threatening ways? How much of it is it that the Trump administration actively deprioritized investigating people who, white people who might be a threat to other people in this country? I mean, I think it's all of those things, right? So the Trump administration absolutely deprioritized investigations into domestic terrorism, trying to really get a handle on those groups and treating them like a serious public safety threat. At the same time, I think President Trump himself really threw open the door to a lot of overt expressions of, you know, hate and racism, et cetera, et cetera, which contribute to this, right? So, like, sometimes I think about these threads of violence in, in our society. They could go – they can be channeled. They're, like – water coming down and then they're like these tributaries and you know in the 90s people horribly shot abortion providers because that was like at the forefront of the consciousness then there are other moments in which they engage in different kinds of violence but there are always these people who are really struggling with like basic human rights and citizenship for all and how much they are sort of being watched by law enforcement and also how free they feel to, like, get out there and protest. The coverage of the Michigan Capitol protests and the whole, like, kidnapping plot against the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, I think is an important piece of this, that you can see these kind of rehearsals almost for the Capitol assault. So I think this is going to be, I mean, you know, Merrick Garland said this is his priority coming in is this investigation and getting a handle of all, on all of this. And that's going to be important. I will also say the Justice Department does so many other things. So I don't want to forget all of that. But I understand this is where we're starting. Right. Well, no, but the, yes, the Justice Department does so many other things and so many other things that the Trump Justice Department altered or abased. The things that I have so many concerns about this are so much so much anxiety about it. Because remember, if you go back to the Obama years, you saw that when the federal law enforcement prioritized, it didn't prioritize it, like it investigated, it It made effort to constrain some of the crazier ultra-conservative white nationalist actions. So if you think of the Bundys taking over the Fed, the Mueller wildlife refuge, it totally galvanized the right when, these, when the federal government was investigating these groups and these people who were seen as somehow proponents of liberty by some loony, loony tombs people on the right. And also, so much of what is dangerous about what these groups, what the Proud Boys do, or what the Oath Keepers do, or what even most of the people that, uh, on January 6th are doing, is so much of it is legal. It's like, it is legal to, in a lot of states, to be open carrying your weapon. It is legal to assemble. It is legal to demonstrate. And in fact, it's good to do that in some ways. But that there's a huge, now, movement, which is 
doing things that are legal but are deeply threatening and can so easily trickle into the illegal, the violent, and and the destructive. But how do you police that and how do you how do you investigate that and control that without trampling on fundamental freedoms that Americans take for granted? And that like I don't think that's an easy question. No, and I was using words like monitor and watch before, which means surveillance. And there is something discomforting about that. I mean, we do want to keep the government's powers to do those things in check. So I think this is the really interesting area of I, I because what you right. So what ends up happening is if you have um if you have Republicans who we've already seen have a strong inclination to basically say, I didn't see the tweets about the um, about the 6th of January, you then would you could certainly see to a situation in which they would look at anything Garland would do to try to go after all of those people who've been named and so forth, easily turn it into always going after us the way that they said that the the IRS was going after conservative groups. Yeah. Um, and in when they had some um, anyway, the way in which they said the, the IRS and the entire Obama administration is going after conservative groups. What that means is that the, what, I think the answer to your question, David, is the way that this behavior is held in check is by norms and traditions and nobody like it's left to sort of a, a, a hard nut of crazy people, but um, the more you let it kind of go and there are no norms to keep behavior in or keep thinking from escalating and becoming apocalyptic is through the behavior of the people closest to you. And so that leads me to after Oklahoma City. After the bombing of Oklahoma City, one of the reasons Bill Clinton regained some stature politically is not only he met the moment by being sort of a national pastor, but also because there was a feeling on the in the Republican Party, oh my gosh, we have been playing footsie with these voices of extremism, and that's terrible. We can't, we don't dare get caught doing that. Some people like Rush Limbaugh said, you know, no, how dare you accuse us of that? But a lot of Republicans felt uh, chastened by the idea that Timothy McVeigh would would ever be associated with their party. That self-chastening is gone in the public reaction to the 6th and to this extremism, and that is what I think is um, what we're trying to figure out then. With that chastening gone, that's why it's like a big problem. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, that's a great point, John. I, I also think the, the, the reason... So much of the work of 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 de-radicalizing this country is not law enforcement and it's That's not right. prosecution. It's in human relationships. It's in it's in technology. It's in like give. It's in trying trying to get the platforms to not make it easy to radicalize people or and the television stations to get the it's to get the media to stop you know raising people's temperature. But the law enforcement piece of it is and the prosecutorial piece of it is pretty minor. It is. It is prosecuting every single person that entered the Capitol to the fullest extent you can prosecute them. But disagree. I'm not sure. Just by the way. Disagree? Yeah. The people who just walked in, I don't really feel like we need to prosecute them to the hilt. You destroyed property, you hurt someone, absolutely. Anyway, that's just me. Lots of people disagree. I just want to be consistent in my law enforcement ideas. Right. The, so the trespass, so, the criminal trespass is not important. I mean, do you want everybody prosecuted for criminal? It's just, right. no, no. Okay. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Right. I, no, I, I mean, just, it's but, very but, satisfying. But, I see it a lot. Like, let's go get them all. But like, anyway, go ahead. But Sorry. also, but Emily, can I just pick up on that? Does, cause it seems like what you're saying could be used as evidence in an argument. The reason you want to be, have, show discretion is 
to not excite the idea that this is a mindless rounding up of all people associated with Donald Trump, that it's basically going after people who did the big stuff. Um, Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Also, it looked like in that moment, look, there were obviously some people who were bent on serious harm. I don't mean to excuse them for one second. Then there were a lot of people who like got caught up in the moment. No one was blocking the door. I like that. I yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's fair. Reasonable minds can disagree about this. That's my whole point. I agree about that. As much as I want to talk about uh, domestic terrorism, white nationalism and the threat it poses, it, it is true, as you point out, that the Department of Justice does other things. I worked at the Department of Justice. I did nothing to do. I had nothing to do with uh, domestic terrorism. I worked on bankruptcy and uh, environmental defense, which sounds like defending the environment, but it's actually the depart the environmental defense office just defends the government when it commits environmental sins. Um, and I also worked on orange juice adulteration cases. So that are some other things that the Department of Justice does. But you may think that the Department of Justice should do other things. Well, I for sure think there are a whole lot of policies and some legal positions that the Justice Department is busy reversing. So on the immigration front, there are a whole lot of court cases to change position in. I mean, for example, this public charge rule that made it much harder for um, immigrants to receive public benefits in this country. There is the policy question of reversing it. And then there is the pending Supreme Court case over this and changing positions in that case, you know, in that that through the Solicitor General's office, the Justice Department argues. So there's immigration. There's enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, which became almost like a joke during the Trump administration because it was used as an excuse for adding a question about citizenship to the census, which obviously was not the real purpose of adding such question and also enforcing the Voting Rights Act in the sense of making sure that the voting power of Black and Hispanic um, voters is not diluted. Diluted, D-I-L-U-T-E-D, not diluted. I don't think I could say that word very Oh, clearly. my God. <laughs> Spelling out loud? Is this really what you want to be doing I'm ever? S- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Diluted. <laughs> Diluted. Um, that was not a big priority of the Trump administration. There are also the Justice Department showed up and, like, told governors they couldn't use their emergency powers to try to fight COVID, like, to have orders restraining people's movements, et cetera, businesses, religious groups. So they're just a lot. And then there's the antitrust enforcement, which actually the Trump administration was quite aggressive on in these actions against Google and Facebook. And so decisions about continuing them. There's just a ton that goes on there. It's so important. And you expect to have changes of policy and some reversal of legal positions when a new administration comes in. But it's just going to be extra dramatic this time because the Justice Department under Bill Barr and Sessions was really moving in a very clear conservative direction. You know, that doesn't even get at just like restoring basic faith that there is some independence of this agency, right? That's like the most important norm to restore is that we don't, the Justice Department does not become the the handmaiden of the president in the sense of like witch hunt investigations against opponents, which was becoming a huge fear toward the end of the Trump administration, if not earlier. For our third topic, we are joined by a new Slate podcast colleague. Jason Johnson is the host of A Word, which is a weekly podcast from Slate about race, politics, and culture, and what's driving this country. It's going to be out every Friday starting this week. So 
Jason is making his debut this Friday. He's also a professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State and an MSNBC contributor and a contributor to The Grio. Um, Jason, welcome to the GabFest. Welcome to Slate Podcasting. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to be here to, to run my mouth. This is good practice. And uh, I'm happy to be part of the Slate family. I, I don't know if I have to be jumped in or if there's a jacket or a badge socks. or a brand, socks. but you know, whatever it I takes, I'll do it. Socks. Okay. I actually I have socks. Some, I have some. I'm a very creative sock wearer. I have some great slate socks. I'm wearing wear my slate socks. They're like magenta with stripes. At this very moment? Kind of by accident. Yes. Yeah. Wow. All right. We're wasting. We're wasting. This is <laughs> wasting a definition our of wasting time, our Jason's listeners' time. time. And everyone's time. Okay. Uh, there was a lot of movement in, or maybe forward movement, backwards movement in several of the cases involving police violence against black Americans this week. In Daniel Prude's case in Rochester, there were no charges filed against the police uh, officers who killed Prude when he was having a a kind of breakdown in March of 2020. In the Elijah McLean case in Colorado, there was also action. There is a lot of concern and preparation for the Derek Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis. Uh, Chauvin, of course, is one of the police officers accused of killing George Floyd. He's the person who had his knee on the back of Floyd's neck, which was one of the precipitating incidents that caused the the massive outpouring of protest and demonstration last summer. Jason, there's no pattern to what is happening in these cases exactly, except it doesn't seem like there has been a huge shift in the country's willingness to punish police officers for these acts of violence. I would say there, there is a pattern here. The pattern is black people get killed in America by cops and nobody gets in trouble. It's not new. I mean, it's, it's, it's been going on since, since the first slave patrols two, 300 years ago. I think what's different is the amount of coverage that it gets is different. I mean, go back 10 years, you know, were we discussing Elijah McClain type cases and George Floyd type cases in 2010? But no. Nobody was really paying that much attention to him. You go back to 1990, I mean, maybe it was Abner Louima and Amadou Diallo. That was about it. So the fact that it's getting coverage is an improvement. If there's any changes that I have seen, uh, they're more rhetorical than they are policy-wise and rhetorical from the standpoint that you have now, quote unquote, reasonable and intelligent people uh, who are saying, hey, our current policies aren't working. You know, body cams don't do anything. Uh, police unions are too strong. It might make sense to just abolish some police departments. That a lot of these police departments, you can put all the consent decrees on them that you want. You can have police chiefs resign. You know, you can't change a McDonald's into a health food restaurant just because you change the management. Okay, the menu is still McDonald's, and that's the case with a lot of these police departments. They they need to be torn down to the studs and rebuilt, and you can't just train people out of racism. So that's 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 my feeling after a lot of these rulings this week. So, Emily, let's talk about that, the the lack of reform or the lack of really deep structural reform in police departments. I think a lot of people hoped coming out of the the protests last summer uh, that there would be significant changes in how police departments are structured, how they are funded. It's been pretty minor. We, there, there are a few interesting spots. The mayor of Ithaca, New York, seems to be attempting. He's going to attempt to disband and reform the police department along totally different lines. But otherwise, there's not been that much change, has there? Right. And I think 
one thing that Jason already brought up that's important here is the strength of the police unions and how resistant they've been to change and the kind of extra protections against accountability that they've been able to successfully win, right? So the way in which um, police officers, when they're involved in um, an act of violence, and I just said that sort of euphemistically, police officers, when they shoot someone or hurt someone or, you know, choke someone, often don't have to give any information, don't talk to investigators for quite a while. They're able to lawyer up. They're really able to, able to protect themselves. And we also continue to see grand juries reluctant to indict officers. And I think personally that has more to do with the high bar in the law to a successful prosecution. We have this standard that if the officer has a reasonable belief that imminent harm could result if they don't act, then you don't indict them. That is very subjective. So I think for a number of reasons, we still don't have that kind of accountability. Emily, wait, can you linger on this grand jury thing? Because I was curious about this, that in a lot of these cases, it's not that prosecutes, in cases where there are grand juries, in states where there are grand juries, you have prosecutors who presumably do want to file charges, bringing their case to the grand jury, and the grand juries decline to do it. Is there Has there been any leak from grand juries or any insight about why it is that grand juries are not doing this? Is it? Is it, are the grand juries saying anything, tipping their hands in some way that, because, because the prosecutors want, presumably want charges. I mean, Maybe. it's a mix, right? There are some prosecutors who do not want right. it. It's very, right? If you're the local prosecutor exactly. in a city and you have to prosecute a cop, that's tough. The police and prosecutors are partners. That's how they do their work. So I yeah. think we've seen in some cities, like for example, um, the Breonna Taylor shooting, killing, in which like I didn't see any great interest in that prosecutor in prosecuting those cops. However, no. the case that um, got some attention justifiably this week, um, the killing of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, that was a grand jury brought by the state attorney general, Atisha James, who said she was very disappointed that the grand jury had not indicted. That is, to me, fascinating, because I think that's a better model, where you take this decision about prosecution away from the local prosecutor, you give it to either a special prosecutor from a different county, or even better, state law enforcement. That happened in the Prude case, it still didn't result in an indictment. That's the tr really fascinating question because yeah. the bar for, I mean, if it's the old line is true that you can indict a ham sandwich and you don't have a prosecutor who has an interest in tipping what the grand jury sees in such a way that they couldn't indict a ham sandwich, what then are, how then, having sat in a grand jury and seen how easy it is to come up with an indictment, how then are they not coming to a conclusion that at least the indictment isn't guilt? It's just let's investigate these things that can only be investigated through the trial process. Right. A judge ruled that we're actually going to see the minutes of the grand jury proceedings in the Daniel Prude case, which I am super interested in and I think will give us more insight into your question, John. Yeah. So I, I think John brings up a good point because this whole idea of like, you know, you should be able to indict a ham sandwich. And I don't know. Maybe this was just a really, really tough ham sandwich. And it just, it just couldn't figure out how to make it seem guilty, no matter how much mustard you threw on it. I, I think at the end of the day, what we're realizing is, again, the limitations of how our legal system work when it comes to black people getting killed. Because, yes, you know, Daniel Cameron had absolutely no interest whatsoever in prosecuting the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor. He made that abundantly clear. Right. The guy didn't care. And then he lied about it in a press conference. 
But Tish James, it's clear that she wanted to get an indictment and couldn't get one. It's clear that Marilyn Mosby with Freddie Gray in, in Maryland, she was trying to get a conviction. She wasn't able to get one when they actually went to trial. So we, we have to understand that as much as we think it's easy to just get this thing done, you still have structural and sort of social racism issues that these state prosecutors have to deal with above and beyond what their motivations may be. John, yeah. you have paid a huge amount of attention to the Elijah McClain case, and there was a big report in that case this week. Just is is the Elijah McClain case following the same pattern we're seeing generally? I think, it, well, it, both yes and no. What made Elijah McClain's case so outrageous is um, that it followed a pattern that we've been talking about, which is basically, you know, a young man walking down the street gets stopped for no particular reason. What the police had been told is that he was acting weird in the um, convenience store he was in. Acting weird amounts to basically he was wearing a kind of a ski mask like thing and he bowed to one of the other customers. Based on that report, the police stopped him in the street. This escalated to the point where um, they were uh, threatening to sick the dogs on him. They ultimately told the paramedics who arrived that he had exhibited excited delirium, a very questionable, some of those who are listening may have heard uh, us talk about before. They give him a dose of ketamine to deal with the excited delirium. He um, dies as a result of that. What happened this week was when the district attorney of the 17th Judicial District decided not to prosecute the police involved, the Aurora City officials said, we want an independent investigation. And what that independent investigation found, and that's the news this week, is that basically the police officers didn't have a legal basis to stop Elijah McLean from walking. They didn't have a legal basis to frisk him. He didn't have anything on him. They didn't have a legal basis to use the chokehold that they used on him, and they really messed up when they used the ketamine. So the important thing about the ketamine, which essentially is the sedative used that that led to his death, is that when the paramedics arrived, they basically took the cop's view that he was um, exhibiting excited delirium, this condition, which I put in air quotes, um, of extreme strength. He hadn't been moving, the independent investigation found, and you can see this on the police video, and that's why in this case, the police video and all of it wasn't available, but what you do see makes all of this quite clear. He hadn't been moving for a minute and a half when they administered this dose of ketamine, which was essentially twice the dose that you would give someone of McLean's size. That's what the independent investigation found. So basically, it thoroughly demolished the both the, the facts of the case, and then the way those facts were reviewed. So what's the next step? I'm not sure. There are other investigations into this as well, but it did uncover a lot of the behavior that has gone uncovered, uh, not covered, I should say, in other instances. And, and, and the, John, if I'm correct, those officers did not lose their jobs for that grotesque behavior nope. towards Elijah McClain. They, the only cop involved in that case who lost his job lost it because of how he responded to a photo someone took later, uh, which was sort of making fun of Elijah McClain. I mean, that's outrageous. Disgustingly. Right. So when I talked to the, the DA about this, going back to Emily's point previously, he basically said, I can't bring a case. And this was, I mean, it's worth people watching the interview. He said, basically, I can't bring a case because the cops said he was exhibiting this extreme strength and that he went for their gun. Of course, it was all dependent on the cops' word, word in the events, and this right. is another thing that the independent investigation goes into, is the nature of the investigation into the event, in which the cops' words is sufficient to create enough reasonable doubt that the DA said, I couldn't bring a case, 
uh, again, uh, as we were talking about earlier, a case that's going to be highly political because it's a DA taking bringing a case against cops. I couldn't bring the case because it wouldn't win uh, in a situation where you needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So, yes, the cops were not uh, fired for anything they did re- related to the actual events that took place on that sidewalk. You know, because I've been skeptical for a long time about calling the police, which we've talked about on the show before, I read the um, research this morning, just noticing over and over again that people who are dealing with mental illness and their families have so few choices. And that when you see these horrible instances in which, yes, the police do the wrong thing, there is so much breakdown before the cops even get there. People are just desperate in this way that just... It's so filled with sorrow. It's like you can trace back these failures in our mental health system and just like the basic care we give to a lot of Americans, especially low-income Americans, especially black Americans, as just as a country. And that always strikes me. One happier thing to say, you may or may not recall that there was a bill that passed the House after George Floyd was killed that has some real reforms in it. A chokehold ban, no more no-knock warrants, a registry for police who have proven misconduct on their records, the end of qualified immunity, or at least a change in qualified immunity that would make it easier to sue police departments. These are real reforms. They did not pass the Senate. Now the Democrats control the Senate. This is a piece of legislation that could actually make a difference in the world if it passed. And, and look, I I believe that there are structural reforms that could be made. But at the end of the day, if it's not something more radical, that I don't think it makes a difference. It was in New York. I think they passed 50A, which uh, should allow people to get access to police misconduct. And the police departments are just be like, you know, screw you. We're not going to send you the information or we're going to send you a bill from Kinko's. You know, you can you can tell people that they can't use a chokehold, but then you end up having debates where you have, you know, yoga instructors coming into court and saying, well, is it technically a chokehold? I mean, you're, you're going to consistently see excuses to justify police violence. And at the end of the day, I've always said this, this speaks to the core sort of racism in America, whether you're talking about the judicial system itself or the people who are part of it. We would never accept this from EMTs. If an EMT kept showing up at people's houses and folks ended up dead, we'd have a problem. If if a school teacher took 15 kids on a field trip and only come back came back with 12, okay, that teacher's going to jail. But cops do that with Freddie Gray and, and Elijah McClain all the time. So I, I, I think at its core, we can we can nip at the heels of this or we can get to the bottom of it, which means police in the way we have conceived of it in America for the last 200 years, simply don't work anymore. You need to have peace officers. You need to have public health officials. You need to have social workers available um, because cops can't do it anymore. So do you imagine public safety, like without armed officers responding? So like in my city, people, and especially a lot of poor people are very concerned about making sure that they have some, they have good policing. They don't want crappy policing, but they want, people to be protecting them from crime, Mm -hmm. Um, which in a lot of American cities, homicides and shootings have been on the rise horribly for the last year. So what do you, what's your response to that? So what you would do is you would rebuild sort of a, a public safety office and you would have targeted responses depending on the description of the event. So for example, if you're like, hey, there is somebody across the street breaking into a window. All right. 
In that instance, you may send a peace officer who is somebody who is armed, and you may send a professional negotiator. If you have a call and says, hey, somebody is wandering around in the snow buck naked, I think they may have a problem, then you may send uh, somebody who's a drug interdiction expert, or you may send a public health official. We can move people very quickly within cities. We've got cars, we've got bikes and everything else like that. You talk about how people have to make split second decisions. Sending a social worker there, sending a negotiator there, sending a drug interdiction person there, that five seconds of first interaction saves people's lives. And then you can use the cops, you can use people with guns for actual situations of danger. And that's what I think the real problem is. I mean, we, we, it's not like these things can't be fixed. And I don't think that this necessarily has to be a public health issue, because quite frankly, if you're calling about a drug dealer on the corner, who's going to be more effective in getting rid of that drug dealer? Sending in a cop with a gun? No, they're just going to move to another building. But sending in a drug interdiction person, three or four of them who are like, look, are you having a drug problem? Do you need this? We can offer you this help, this sort of assistance. That's going to be a heck of a lot more effective. Jason Johnson is the host of A Word, a new weekly podcast from Slate about race and politics and culture. As you can tell from this segment, that's going to be a really good podcast. It starts this Friday, and it'll be going for a long time. Jason, thanks for coming to the GapFest. Look forward to the podcast. Cool. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting, perhaps with the sun at last shining, the snow melting, mm. a twinkle, a spring twinkle in your eye, and a shot of bourbon in your glass, what will you be chattering about, Emily? My chatter this week comes from a longtime friend of Slate's, Oros Harmon. Um, Oros. He has, Oros. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. Oh, my God. Hi, <laughs> he has gotten really excited about um, the Mapping Inequality Project. So this is an academic project that collects maps, I think mostly from the 1930s and 40s, that really show how redlining worked in many American cities. They're, you know, super detailed local maps um, showing all the rules and restrictions that apply to homeownership and other aspects of, you know, residential living in these cities. And what Oros and the people he's working with have discovered is that there are thousands of pages of documentation of these maps and related materials that are sitting neglected in dusty boxes in the National Archives. And so they are... Are all the boxes dusty, or is that just a metaphor? (laughs) I guess it's a metaphor, but it's 
I guess maybe they're on computer files, actually. But it's sort of a useful metaphor, right? If they're not actually dusty, they're like forgotten. Let's and and they're not accessible. That's the really important part. What Oros's group is doing is trying to help the National Archives and the academic team behind the Mapping Inequality Project to get these records all digitized so we can all see them. So they're raising money for this project and it's all going to this like digitizing work that would allow, um, you know, the public to understand what happened. And also, frankly, probably some amazing journalism and academic work could come out of this. So if you want to learn more about this, the website is donorbox.org slash mapping hyphen inequality. And uh, we'll tweet that out and stuff. So you can go take a look. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Two things. One, a little self-log rolling, and the second is um, is an actual chatter. One is, uh, unless something weird happens, um, a piece on Colson Whitehead will be on 60 Minutes, which is an uh, underground railroad we've talked about on the show. Um, anyway, so everybody can tune into that. But the other um, thing that you should go find and read is the New York Times story about... Um, the um, the Marshes, which are uh, it was an, a British or an English family that lives um, in Faversham, England, and basically during the pandemic they have um, passed the time by writing parodies to popular songs, and this might seem dorky, and it is lovably so, but they're very clever and funny, and they also are just kind of winning humans. So I encourage you to go read the piece in the Times about the Marshes. That, they are very charming. In fact, some listener sent us a Marsh song as listener chatter. What's their most recent one? It was, it was very timely. It was some third. Totally, totally fixed where we are is the one that I've been that that is in the Times piece that I liked. I don't know if it's the um, most recent. My chatter is uh, hey something I saw on the internet. Rex Chapman. We've talked about Rex Chapman's Twitter feed before. Former great basketball player who has a great Twitter feed. He linked to one of the most amazing clips he's ever seen. And I would say it's one of the most amazing clips I've ever seen. And it's a, the school bus arriving in Mongolia. It's this uh, delivery of children to a school. And you see this vehicle coming towards you. And then you realize, oh, it's just a Jeep. It's a regulation size Jeep that pulls up. And then the kids start to get out. So there are a couple of adults in it. And then the kids get out. And then they get out. And they get out. And they get out. And it's like ultimately... 36 kids get out of what is just a regular Jeep. And it's you're, you just can't even imagine what the mechanics of them all fitting in it are, but it's so fun to watch. It's crazy. Totally agree. Um, so check that out, and we will link to it. Listeners, you continue to send us great chatters this week, and we have a chatter from Yaya Designs 1. Take it away, Yaya Designs 1. Hi GabFest, I thought you all might want to listen to some original rock music. Sorry for the pun. Archaeologist Jean-Louis Ringot is playing on a group of stones called a lithophone, or a rock gong. This instrument has been found all over the world proving that music is truly a universal language. I like listening to those sounds. And basically he's like rubbing or like moving stuff around on some rocks. And it's like a kind of prehistoric xylophone. That was sort of how I experienced it. And it was just 
cool. It's, John's only interested if they uh, were doing some John Prine songs on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't John Prine, I don't think. He doesn't count as classic 40th rock. anniversary of Oh Boy Records this week, though, for those of you who... Or bo- a, bo- a, bob- a cover of, like, a Rolling Stone on Stone. That would be also be acceptable. <laughs> like, right, exactly. That would be good. That is our show for today. The Gap is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us here. We love getting your chatters. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hi, GapFest listeners. We're making the Slate Plus segment available in its entirety this week because we think it really is a great example of the bonus conversations you could get every week with a Slate Plus membership. Please enjoy and sign up today. It's just $1 for the first month. Thanks and happy listening. Hello, Slate Plus. I, I this is this is a topic that I I proposed, and I can't say that I'm exactly prepared for it. But let me just set it up as as I envisioned it, which is that it feels to me like one of the themes in American life these days is sort of like too much risk taking versus too little risk taking. That a lot of the stories that we're looking at are stories about occasions when for whatever reason America undertook to like took a took an elaborate risk um, which it shouldn't have taken or where it didn't take nearly enough of a risk that it should have taken and I'll just give a few examples the story of the Texas energy market is in some ways a this this huge bet that if you don't regulate an energy market and you don't anticipate you, you choose to ignore the possibility that there'll be serious weather consequences and that you don't winterize your electrical grid um, but but in the meantime, you get really cheap energy prices. That that's a that was a bet that people made, even though stupid. Lots of it, it turned out to be extremely stupid. Not people. The companies were stupid. Not the individual Texans who were merely screwed, as far as I can. There tell. are things like not funding sort of research into zoonotic emerging zoonotic diseases, where lots of people said there could be a coming pandemic, even a coronavirus pandemic. But the research into that was not funded, so that we weren't very well prepared. So those are cases where we didn't take precautions early on that would have been wise precautions and saved us billions, trillions of dollars and and heartbreak and, and misery and suffering and death. On the other hand, we have on the other side, vaccine hesitancy, people not taking the risk of getting a vaccine because they've over over-indexed for their fear about the possible bad impacts of that vaccine or as we've discussed on the show before, the school's not reopening because of a, like, there's not, there's not zero risk for schools reopening, but it does appear that people are over, over feeling what those risks are. And I just want us to have a discussion. I don't really know what the discussion is about how we do this better. I mean, my own theory is that we Americans, because we have a, sort of a weakly regulated society and a very highly, like a a story that we tell ourselves that we're highly entrepreneurial and self-sufficient, that we tend to massively under-anticipate and under-plan for big risks that that government should be planning for. And then after the fact, we're way too cautious and anxious after traumatic events. 
that's what school reopening is. That's what a lot of the sort of the security theater around terrorism after 9-11, I think that we've, we've all felt for now 20 years, and that's exacted a huge cost and time and inconvenience on all of us. And we're just, we're just bad at both ends. Yeah, we're very good at financing the national door closing effort after the horse is out of the barn. <laughs> yeah, that's well put. And then why is that? So I one reason is that some of the big risks you were talking about, David, are kind of boring sounding or they seem far away. And then when we get obsessed with risk after the horse is out of the barn, it's often because there are very disturbing narratives that have really gripped our consciousness and we're, we over respond, right? So like terrorism is the perfect example, but also, you know, a terrible murder in a particular city can lead to over law enforcement response. And I think to some this it's really hard to talk about this right now with regard to coronavirus because we're not out of the woods. But, you know, some of the public health messaging, I think, has contributed to people's reluctance to take the vaccine because it has been so cautious about saying, for example, that the vaccines probably significantly reduce transmission. And so when you make the vaccines seem watered down, less powerful than they really are in ending the pandemic. You give people less of a reason to take them. I mean, I would also argue that we got the risk calculation wrong, for example, by not starting human challenge trials much earlier to try to create remedies, vaccines, treatments that could have saved lots of lives because we are so uncomfortable with putting like individual lives at risk in any kind of scientific apparatus and there are good historical reasons for that but it's tremendously costly and i've been thinking a lot about the um the price of over caution lately and it's it's obviously like that's a very loaded thing to say what does over caution mean but i think as we've tried to find our way out of the pandemic we have to figure out a, another way to think about not eliminating risk but living with low risk which of course like historically we've done that all the time with things like the flu but i feel like we're sort of it's going to be a tough transition to make, I think. Our biggest problem with risk, personally or as a culture, is that we uh, we have a tough time bringing the long-term consequences of immediate action into the forefront. So, you know, it's just easier to, whether it's snacking on some crap that's going to make you less healthy because it's right in front of you, instead of thinking about the long-term consequences or whether it's not addressing climate change, it's essentially the a version of the same thing and that all the cultural forces, political and otherwise, are all geared at making anything, any transaction frictionless so that to the extent that you might be nervous about um, spending on the delivery food that you can get by pressing a button because it might blow your budget instead of just making yourself something in the in the cupboard, they make the pressing of the button um, super, super easy so that you don't so you can get past that momentary friction. And the whole problem politically is that the entire reason we got together and formed a government was to deal with long-term risks, because the kind of thinking that is required to think about long-term risks and the ability to plan for them now so they don't get you into a position where it's impossible to take them on because it's too late, that's why you form governments. And the problem is our entire, well, not our entire, but lots of our political conversations only happen in the moment. And that's ever more the case now that it's all whipsawed by social media. And so, and the, and the very notion, imagine a lawmaker who said, you know, my job is to tell people who've been excited by 
um, about by demagogic politicians and by social media and by pundits on TV that you're wrong because considered thought suggests that all of this emotional bit reaction you're having is totally wrong and you need to behave in the following way so that we can do more for the common good. You would get, you know, pilloried. But that's, in fact, the way the government was set up because of this misapprehension of risk. I mean, I, Emily, it's funny you're, that you turn to the, the overcaution in the, in the uh, aftermath. And I think, John, you're turning to the, the failure of caution in the before times. And they're, but they're both, you know, they both exist and they, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're the same instinct that causes both of them to happen. I mean, I think, I think with one of the reasons why we've become especially bad about planning in advance for known disastrous risks, like a zoonotic disease, like a failure of a power grid is that we don't really have a Mandarin class in this country anymore in the way that we want. Like we don't, it is actually, uh, the deep state, like one of the purposes of the deep state is you you entrench expertise, you entrench project management, you entrench a kind of professional bureaucratic class, some of which is, you know, is creating regulations that are bur burdensome and onerous, but a lot of which is planning for things in the long term, planning, let's make sure we have a drug approval process that is not going to poison lots of people. Let's make sure that we think about what the what the hazards are of having a lot of mercury in the air. You know, let's let's anticipate what kind of infrastructure we need on a national scale to allow us to move our population around. And those we've that Mandarin class and that kind of that authority that comes with government has diminished and weakened in recent years and has been intentionally subverted by by one political party. And that means that all these things which are which are some of which it turned out to be bad investments are things that we invest in that are bad investments. Like it doesn't, it turns out not to be worth it to spend the hundred million dollars to do X. But then there's the things where you spend a hundred million dollars and it turns out to save you hundreds of billions of dollars later. And you just don't know. So you have to make up a, a lot of these, these anticipatory planning bets. And we just, we've gotten so bad at, at deciding which ones to do and then actually funding them. Because as you say, John, we're, we're kind of yanked by, the moment in politics and because I think the Republican Party doesn't believe this is a function of government anymore. So I have to say, I mean, I think you trust in elites and like mandarins more than I do maybe, but I am drawing a different lesson right now, especially from like the FDA, for example. I mean, the FDA is being I know that we produce these vaccines faster than ever before, but like the FDA compared to some regulatory agencies, for example, in the United Kingdom has been really slow. They have still not approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. They stuck to this, you know, two dose with three or four weeks between them regimen that has really slowed down vaccination in the United States, again, compared to the UK. I think the British are going to prove to have taken a much smarter bet than we did. And we say, like, right, so there's also a way in which the scientific bureaucracy can become calcified. Uh, of course, of course. Yeah, definitely. And where it can make choices that are wrong and delay access. I mean, you, you, we saw this during the, the development of AIDS drugs, where all these people who were going to die unless they were given drugs and the FDA and, and the federal health authorities were so slow and like letting people try out these drugs or get compassionate use exemptions for these drugs. And it was just stupid and cruel. Of course, that is absolutely the case. But on the other hand, 
part of what, why are we having this successful vaccine? Uh, why were these successful these vaccines developed successfully? It was like a massive scientific infrastructure, a planning for, you know, this basic research about RNA and using RNA to make vaccines. That's a that's an that's a bet that was a fe- that was sort of federally funded and subsidized that is paying off with vaccines that are developing at, at lightning speed. Totally. Do we, Just do, oh, go ahead. Well, do we need a classification uh, moment here, which is to say that I th- aren't you guys talking about basically fine um, tweakings of um, of the model. In other words, maybe the FDA could have been better, but there's a lot that they did at record speed that at least was um, suggested an understanding of risk that was a little bit more pliable than the gross misapprehension of risk, which is which has basically clotted our entire political, not our entire, but a lot of our political conversation, which is that everything is of the moment. Everything is day trading and that that's a huge problem. And so it feels like you've got, there's kind of two different things, not to say that the fine gradations are unimportant or not um, necessary, but like the, the global misapprehension of risk, and this gets to voters and in the school debate, which is, is just having a way to talk about risk in a world where everything that is in the moment, all the messages and things coming to you through your television screen and your computer screen are to think of the danger in the moment and that we have no structure to get out of that kind of uh, immediate emotional reaction and have a little bit longer term reaction and and that that's a that's a huge big colossal problem affecting all these that, different domains. Yes, yes. Yeah, totally. No, I think you're right. I was like zeroing in on one part of the picture and you're zeroing out again, which is really <laughs> useful. So one thing I think about a lot, John, in this regard is our role in this because storytelling is part of the solution but part of the problem, right? Yes. I mean, we as humans tend to respond to individual narratives. So like It is a colossal tragedy that 500,000 people have died from coronavirus, but the way we make emotional sense of that is through individual stories. And I think about this all the time, because the stories we choose to tell affect how people perceive risk and what they want to do and how they shape their lives. And the stories that grab them are some combination of the ingredients that we, the storytellers, put into them and also how they receive them based on their experiences. And it is I the power of narrative is so crucial to human experience and to the work all of us do. And yet it also is really dangerous in this and other way. I, could, I totally couldn't agree with you more. And then I would add to that sort of or adjacent to that is a it's hard to tell stories about dogs that haven't barked. Right. So yes. big threats in the future that we need to deal with now yeah, I mean, certainly from a TV perspective, the, the the danger in those kinds of stories all the time is, you know, what are the pictures? And then the second thing, sort of kind of on the other end of the scale, is the constant wolf crying that goes on in the media about possible dangers from this and that and the other thing where it's even worse than what David rightly put his finger on, which is sometimes you make bets and sometimes you have to think about risks that don't pan out, but it's prudent to think about long-term risk because basically if you get it wrong, it's too late. But there's this other thing, which is the constant wolf crying, which makes it really hard for people to understand which risks should be really taken, paid attention to and which aren't. And then I would put, say, finally, the apocalyptic thinking that's a part of our day trading political moment that's so awful. On the other hand, there are many people who would argue that the lack of a sufficient sense of, of the harm being done 
that could essentially build to the 6th of January, that there was not sufficient apocalyptic response to the president's erosion of the very basis of facts and truth that led to the 6th. And so that's another balance that But it's so hard, right? Like, one of the reasons we're so focused on the horse after it comes out of the barn is that the horse left the barn. Like, we can report (laughs) that. That happened. Whereas, like, are President Trump's rhetorical excesses going to lead to an assault on the Capitol? I mean, until it happened, I would have been reluctant to predict that because I always just think, like, what do I know about what's going to happen next? That is such a hard part of this. Yeah. I mean, I would just like to close by thinking... Thanking the horse, the dog, <laughs> and the wolf. <laughs> and the wolf. They all made their metaphorical <laughs> appearances. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Slate Plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.